So starting at Genesis chapter 3 from verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good from evil, good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The second reading is from uh, the New Testament, um, John's Gospel, chapter 3 from verse 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be plainly seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you again. My name is Evan, and let's pray that God would give us understanding of his word. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, your word rebukes the proud and blesses the humble. And so, Lord, we pray that you might make us humble before your word this morning and humble before you. Amen. Well, uh, if you're new with us this morning, it's great to have you, but you've come six weeks into an eight-week series on these wonderful and foundational chapters in the book of Genesis. And so far we have seen God, the beginningless creator, spin all of our reality into existence effortlessly, simply by his word. And the world that he made for us to rule in his image was a world that was full of of wonderful and good things. It was a world of, of painless and productive work. 
It was a world of oneness between men and women. Just last week we spoke about that, that wonderful picture of the man and the woman, naked and yet without any shame, completely open uh, and yet without any fear. And it was a world of deep rest, rest for the body, rest for the soul. And it's such a wonderful picture, you can't help but notice that our world today seems to bear little resemblance to what God created in Genesis chapter 2. Our experience of our world is so different, so infinitely inferior to what it seemed to be back then. Even the best moments of our lives serve only to remind us of what things could have been like and should be like in our worlds. Our world feels broken. Our world feels flawed. Our world feels damaged. And so the question is, what happened? What happened between Genesis chapter 2 and now that means that this is the world in which we live? And the answer is Genesis chapter 3 happened. The fall happened, which is just a fancy term for our human rebellion against our creator God. And the fall affects every part of our world and every part of our lives. From the difficulties that we have in relationships to the struggles and dissatisfaction that we find with our work to even the perpetual struggle between good and evil in our worlds. And it even affects the ultimate human destiny of every single one of us throughout all of history. And today I want us to see one thing. I want us to see that we are to blame. That we are to blame. I want us to see the historical event of the fall of Adam and Eve. But I also want us to see that actually what they did then happens in our own lives. It's repeated day after day after day. And I want us to see that we cannot avoid the tangible contribution to the fallenness of this world that each and every one of us makes. So where did it all begin? Where did it all begin to go wrong? And the answer is that it began with words. Just as God created our world through words, so too the fall of humanity began with words. But these words are not like God's words. These words, when sin began, were lies. And so I want to talk to you this morning about the three lies of the serpent. Did God really say? God's a spoil sport. Go on. Break free. And the second lie, you will not die. There'll be no consequences. And the third lie of the serpent, you'll be like God. It's your time. You can make the rules now. And then I very quickly want to mention at the end three consequences of sin that happen straight away, uh, even before God pronounces his judgment. And it's very helpful if you have your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 3. So the first lie of the serpent then in verse 1. Come with me there now, would you, to verse 1 of of chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say... You must not eat from any tree in the garden. Now, what a silly way to begin. The serpent was probably asking this very question as the woman and the man were tucking into a delicious feast of all the tasty fruits that they were allowed to eat from. The world of Genesis chapter 2 was a paradise. There was perfect provision spiritually with the tree of life. Uh, 
There was perfect provision physically with all the other plants, all the other trees in the garden. And there was perfect provision morally with the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil representing God's right order and rule, uh, right at the very centre of the garden. And so there was tremendous freedom for the man and the woman in this paradise that God had made for them uh, within the kindness of his rule. And into this paradise comes the serpent bringing the suggestion that that perhaps God's provision uh, is inhibiting and restrictive. Uh, that perhaps that what they're living in is nothing more than a gilded cage, that they're imprisoned in luxury. Did God really say? Not from any tree in the garden? And of course, this is an absolute nonsense. God didn't say anything of the sort. Uh, if you've got your Bibles there open, flick just back one page to Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Uh, there God gives them the command. There God said, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. There was only one tree that was forbidden to them. Everything else was generously given to them. What the serpent says is a nonsense. But it's also a nonsense because it's the most basic truth that you cannot have freedom without order. You cannot have freedom without order. Order without freedom is a a manacle. But freedom without order, well, that's just a mirage. The idea that we can all do whatever we want, whenever we want it, that's not a recipe for freedom. That's a slavery to chaos, as every parent knows or every teacher knows. Perfect freedom is found in the right order, the right order, the right rules, the right boundaries that accord with the reality of who we are and the world that God has made us to live in. In my mind this week, I had the image of a, a train going along a set of tracks. Uh, only I've got young kids, so I watch lots of uh, children's television. So I was thinking of Thomas the Tank Engine, because he's one of the favourites at the moment. And pretty much every episode of, of Thomas the Tank Engine is kind of Thomas doing his thing, and then someone kind of comes along and whispers in his ear to do something that he knows he ought not to do, and then he does it anyway. And this week I could almost imagine Thomas the Tank Engine happily puffing down the tracks and then alongside him pulls up uh, Edmund, probably Edmund. I get a bad vibe about him. <laughs> and he speaks to Thomas as he's chugging along and he says, look at the fields. Look how lovely they are. Look how, how green they are. Look at Sean the sheep frolicking out there. Uh, look at the octonauts uh, playing in, in the water. Uh, the, the fat controller, he's very restrictive, isn't he? When he says that you must remain on the tracks. How dull to be so restricted. What a spoil sport. Go on, break free. And the foolishness of this is clear when you put it like that, isn't it? Where does a train belong? On the rails, on the tracks. That's where it's free. That's where it's happy. And we all know what happens when a train comes off the track. It's a disaster. And yet we are all too happy to believe the lie of the serpent. That God's loving rule, that the rails that he has set before us are somehow restrictive and chafing. In fact, come to to verses 2 and 3 of chapter 3 and notice how Eve responds to the words of the serpent. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees of the garden. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Then he noticed the difference. She's added to God's command. God didn't say they couldn't touch it. 
Eve added that in. She, she's made the rule of God, she's made the word of God out to be more restrictive and more limiting than it actually is. It sounds like she's confidently rebuking the serpent's lies, but actually inwardly she's already internalised what the serpent is suggesting. She's already begun to believe the lie. And this lie is very powerful. In fact, this lie stands at the centre of every temptation that you or I will ever face. Did God really say? Did he really say that the only place for sex was inside the lifelong commitment of marriage between a man and a woman? How inhibiting. What a spoil sport. Go on, break free. We've all heard that whisper. We've all felt that temptation and we've all believed this, the oldest of all lies. But the second oldest of all lies is in verse 4. You will not die. Emboldened by success and empowered by the belief of the woman, the serpent lies again. No, you will not die. God's a wimp, God's a pushover, God won't do anything about rebellion or disobedience. God's promise to bring judgment on rebellion, it's just an empty threat on which he cannot deliver. Go on, do it, there'll be no consequences. And this is a very bold lie. This time the serpent is outright contradicting God. And once again, if you analyse this thought for just a moment, then it is just as nonsense as the first one. There has to be a judgment. There has to be justice. You and I, we believe in justice. It's built into the very fabric of who we are since the very beginning. Uh, And if you doubt that within each one of us there is a sense of right and wrong and a sense of justice, uh, then let me invite you to conduct an experiment. Let me invite you to come to my house with just one piece of chocolate for my three children. And then you'll hear the the outrage, then you'll hear the the cry of, of, of pain and of the injustice of our world as I take the piece of chocolate and eat it myself and leave them with nothing. We all know uh, that we have this sense of justice in us. Uh, We feel it as we watch the news. We know it as we shout at the referee. Uh, Every time we say, that's not fair, we know, we express that, that sense of justice that's in each and every one of us. And God put it there. And God would not be God if he could ignore that need for justice. And so the serpent whispers to us all, go on. Even if he catches you, there'll be no consequences. Such a powerful lie again. And yet it is believed and it is taught by so many. C.H. Dodd is a prominent and influential theologian. He was professor of theology at Cambridge University. If you're going to be a professor of theology, that's certainly the place to do it. He's the author of over 31 books. And he put forward the idea that there is no personal expression of God's anger at our rebellion. It's just cause and effect. That bad things happen when we do silly things. But actually, there's no judgment. And there's no sin. You will not die. Or more recently, Rob Bell, 
who's a prominent leader in the emerging church. In fact, his Numa DVDs line Christian bookshops to this day. And in his book, Love Wins, he says that God's judgment is really just an intense experience of correction, that there is no personal or eternal hostility towards our rebellion. Go on. Do it. Even if he catches you, there'll be no consequences. It's the second oldest lie in the book, but, you know, give it a a new coat of paint. Uh, Put some music underneath it and we will fall for it, hook, line and sinker. And I mustn't blame them. Their ideas are only popular because they write what people want to hear, what people want to believe. Because there is one person I've noticed in this world who does not cry out for justice. And that is the guilty person. The person who knows that they have done the wrong thing. The guilty person grows strangely silent when it comes to calling out for God's justice to be done. And so the one who is guilty before God is strangely vulnerable to this terrible lie, aren't they? Because they want, because we want, or we want it to be true. But of course God has to judge. We live in a broken world because God does judge and God does act. He will not let our rebellion go unchecked or unpunished. And we will see that next week very clearly. We will see Adam and Eve exiled from the garden, cut off from the tree of life, cut off from God, out of God's place and facing an eternity without him. The second lie, you will not die. And yet it's as powerful now as it was then. The third oldest lies in verse 5, and in some ways it's the climax of the three. Verse 5, you'll not certainly die, the servant said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God said you would die when you ate the fruit. But not only will you not die, actually you'll be enlightened. You'll gain knowledge. You'll become like God. You'll even become God, knowing good and evil. You won't need God anymore. He won't need to be part of your life. You can decide for yourself what is right and what is wrong. And this is the secular enlightenment dream. This is the atheist's dream, a world without God. A world where we don't need God to tell us right from wrong, good from evil. A world where we can determine it for ourselves, where we can break free from God because we've come of age. We're very advanced now. We're very sophisticated technologically and scientifically. And so certainly we are in all the other areas of our life as well, aren't we? We've made great progress. The new is always better than the old. This idea of God. And his inhibiting rules, they're so restrictive, so primitive. We are the gods now. And what the empires of atheism in the 20th century tried to do, the secularist empires of the 21st century are rapidly achieving. Now we know good from evil, they say. Let's relegate religion to the private sphere. Let get anyone with a religious conviction out of public office, we can determine what's right and wrong now. We can define marriage. We can define gender. 
We've come of age. We've grown up. We don't need God. We're the gods now. Go on. Break free. There'll be no consequences. It's happening in our world. And yet it only happens in our world because it happens in our hearts. To become like God is a fantasy that is difficult to repress and a temptation that's hard to reject. And yet what's so sad about this is that they were made in the very image of God. They were already closer to God than anything else in all of creation. How could breaking God's commands make them more like God? It could only make them less. And they even already knew what was good and what was evil. They already knew that it was good to obey God and that it was evil to eat from the tree that they were commanded not to. But they do come to know good and evil in a different way when they eat the fruit. They come to experience it for themselves. It's like the difference between a doctor and a patient. A doctor knows a disease by, by seeing it, by, by studying it, by, you know, by, by understanding it, but actually a patient knows it by suffering it, by living it, by enduring it. One knows intellectually, the other knows by experience. The man and the woman, they already knew good and evil like a doctor knows a disease, but now they are the patients. Now they will experience what it means to be evil. Three great lies in this chapter. The three great lies that stand behind every temptation that has ever come to any person. And every temptation that we ever follow, will pretty much it will follow this course almost exactly. It will involve one or often all of these lies. God is a spoil sport. Go on. Break free. There'll be no consequences. You don't need God. You can make the rules and they're all whispered to us in different ways and at different times and our world now is a broken world because of these three lies lies that Adam and Eve believed and so they ate what God commanded them not to do and yet are we to somehow blame them for this are we to blame Adam and Eve it's all their fault as if we take, take no responsibility for our actions because we fall prey to these lies as well. Hourly, weekly, monthly, yearly, we fall prey to the same lies of the serpent. And so all of us show that had we been Adam or Eve, had we been the ones back there in the garden, we would have done exactly the same thing that they did. But I don't want to stop here. I very quickly want to show us some of the consequences of believing these lies. Some of the consequences that happen straight away, even before God's judgment. Uh, first of all, there's confusion. Have a look at verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. You'll notice it that in the first part of verse 6, the woman has actually become confused. She begins to get things wrong. Uh, she sees eating the fruit as something good when actually she knows that it is evil. 
She sees disobeying God as something that is desirable and even a delight. The lies have actually turned her whole world upside down. And suddenly evil is good and good is evil. She desires this fruit. She desires it intensely. She desires it even more than she desires to obey God. And now that desire is actually affecting her mind. The lies of the serpent have given her the tools to justify and to rationalize the sin that she is about to commit. When the desire to sin enters into your heart, the mind will follow The mind will rationalise, the mind will justify, the mind will legitimise the sin. That's the way that the lies work. And doesn't this just describe our world almost perfectly? Having believed the lies, now our world is confused. With all their might saying that evil is good and good is evil. Confusion reigns in a world of lies where there is no truth. And so now that Eve is confused, of course she eats. Why wouldn't she? She won't die. There'll be no consequences and the fruit is good. And of course she gives some to her husband who was with her and he ate. It's very important to realise this. It's very important to locate Adam in this story, even though he's not mentioned until verse 6. Adam is not absent from the story Adam has been there all along. I'm not exactly sure what he's been doing. Uh, Maybe he's been watching television or or playing PlayStation. I I don't know. But but he's been there the whole time. Uh, And so he's heard the lies and he's believed the lies as well. And at no point has he silenced the serpent over whom he was commanded to rule. And at no point has he stopped his wife whom he was commanded to love. He has failed in his responsibility to God. He's failed in his responsibility to the serpent and he's even failed in his responsibility to his wife. If Eve's sin was to do what she ought not to have done, then Adam's sin was to not done what he ought to have done because he was with her the whole time. And immediately upon eating the fruit in verse 7, they are ashamed. Uh, Before they could be naked with one another without shame. Before they could be completely open, they could be completely vulnerable to one another without any fear of hurt or rejection. But simultaneously, Adam and Eve realise, if I can reject God, well, I can reject you. I can hurt you. And suddenly they need some protection from one another. Suddenly they can't be quite so open And so they rush to to hide themselves beneath fig leaves from each other. And they rush to hide themselves from God as well in verse 8. Verse 8 should have been the most wonderful verse in this whole chapter. Uh, You know, here comes God to walk with them in the the cool of the afternoon, to talk with them, uh, to talk over the day, to talk over the plans for tomorrow with the creator of the universe. But Adam and Eve hide from God because of the shame of what they have done. Gone is the perfect relationship that they had with each other. Gone is the perfect relationship that they had with God. And with their guilt comes deep shame. Just as Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 19, this is the verdict, light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. 
Why does our secular world hate Christian truth and increasingly hate those who believe it? Well, the same reason why a cockroach scurries and hides under a fridge when you turn the light on. They are ashamed. They are hiding. And why is it when we are sinning that we find it hard to go to church, hard to go to small group, impossible to pray? Because we too are ashamed. And so we hide from the light of God and the light of his word, just like Adam and Eve did. And with shame comes blame. They also, they blame each other for the predicament that they're in. They, they kind of try and pass the buck amongst themselves. They point the figure, the finger at everyone else. Uh, God calls to Adam first as the one who is accountable, uh, confirming much of what we talked about last week, about the order of relationship that there is between the, the Adam and Eve. But Adam doesn't, he doesn't accept any responsibility for what's happened. In fact, Adam has this wonderful double bunger of an excuse he says to God, no, the woman that you put here, she's the one to blame. You're the, everyone else is to blame but him. Adam literally blames everyone else in all of creation except himself for what he's done. It's horrible really, isn't it? Adam is willing to throw Eve under a bus if it means that he will save his own skin. And he even blames God for making this perfect world and this perfect woman for him. How often have you heard that excuse? God made me do it. God is to blame. God's fault. He made me this way. The woman, well, she blames the serpent. She blames the world around her. It's it's the environment. You know, I I didn't have the right sort of education. Uh, it's society and it's evil influences that, that are to blame. It's, maybe it was my parents if she'd had any. And the serpent, well, if you'll pardon the pun, he is silent for he does not have a leg to stand on. Blame, blame, blame. It's always someone else's fault. It's always someone else. There's always some excuse. God has come to them. He knows what they've done. He is giving them an excuse to confess. He's giving them an opportunity to repent and to take responsibility, but all they can do is blame one another. And so where does this leave us? With a broken world. The beautiful picture of God's creation in Genesis 1 and 2, it's already gone. Even before God judges the man and the woman, already the order of God's world has been completely undone. God created a world where he ruled And where we ruled the world under him with Adam taking responsibility and Eve as the helper. And all creation submitting to us, to our rule and to our work. And yet here now a serpent, an animal, has tempted humanity to rebel. And Eve has not been a helper to Adam. She has led him into sin. And Adam has taken no responsibility whatsoever despite being there the whole time. And everyone has rebelled against God. Everyone is guilty. God's order is ravaged and our relationship with God now is terminally compromised. This is a broken world now, according to Genesis chapter 3. But we are part of the problem. And we cannot fix it whilst we are part of the problem. 
And if you don't realise this, if you don't understand this about our world, that actually we are part of the problem, then you will engage in naively optimistic behaviours, either in the name of Christianity or in the name of ordinary good works. We will think that somehow we can solve all the problems of our world. That's not to say there isn't good things to be done. There are good things to be done. This is not to say that there isn't a real contribution that we can make to somehow helping some things that are going wrong in a world. But if you think that somehow we can recreate what God gave us at the very beginning through our own effort and skill and ability, then you are sadly mistaken because we are part of the problem and we cannot fix it. And if we think we can, we'll waste time and energy on a whole host of hopeless causes. We will plough our talents and our abilities into futile tasks. But if Genesis chapter 3 is right, while the same lies are being whispered, we are part of the problem and not part of the solution. And as much as I want to end here, I can't. As much as I think uh, you know, leaving us for a week to stew in our own juices would do us some good, I won't. Because there is still hope. God has not yet spoken. And next week when he does speak, he will speak a word of judgment. But he will also speak a word of grace and a word of mercy and a word of love. It's a wonderful thing really. In so many ways... The whole story could have finished right here. Human sin. And we would know what we need to know in order to understand why our world is the way that it is. And yet the Bible, if you haven't noticed, goes for quite some time yet. Because God doesn't let the story end. God, by his grace and mercy, keeps going. And when he does finally bring about the answer when he does finally tell us of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the answer to the problem of sin. The answer to all of these problems, the answer is not somehow do better, work harder, pull up your socks. It's not a a hard word. It's a wonderful word. When Jesus comes, he comes as a teacher to take away our confusion. He comes as a king to win honour and victory, to take away our shame. And he comes as a sacrifice to take away the blame, to take away the guilt, so that we can come to our God and acknowledge our failures and receive what he promises, forgiveness, love, mercy and a way a new way a door opened back to his place where we can be with him forever let's pray gracious heavenly father this is a hard passage a hard passage to hear a hard passage to realize that we too are vulnerable. We too have listened to the lies of the serpent and we have believed them. 
Lord, we are sorry for those times where we have doubted your goodness and refused to listen to your word. We are sorry for those times where we just assumed that you wouldn't punish, that you're not a God, a God of justice, a God who wants to do what is right. And we are sorry for those times where we've tried to take your place and make the rules ourselves. Lord, we are sorry for we know that we are part of the problem. And yet, Lord, thank you for Jesus, our teacher, our king, the sacrifice to pay for our sin and our rebellion. And we thank you that because of him and what he has done, a door is opened that any of us who come to him in humility confessing our sins and trusting in him can have a place by your side, not just now, but forever.